I've seen, brethren, believe me, I've seen a lot of poverty. And I thank God that I've been able to minister poor countries. Not as much as I should. I've never been to Africa, but some of my friends have. But to this day, we if you could see the emails we get on Africa, it makes you cry. Some of our people who follow us, they, don't, they have nothing to eat. They have ten children. One of them is, I had to send some money from here. No job. And they want to know how to keep the fish of unleavened bread. You know, it does something. These people mean what they say. They say they want to do what God said and they pray for God's kingdom. We're spoiled. We're so spoiled. Whether it's here or Europe or Canada. And, and we're so spoiled. We have so much. And we complain, as you heard this morning. You know, brethren, when I see what we have in this country and what we're doing with what we have and the way we are just directing our steps, you don't have to be a prophet, you don't have to be a believer to see that you're going down. When you see coming down the tenth floor of, of, from the tenth floor and you see the eighth floor, the seventh floor, the sixth floor, you're doing fine. So far so good. Even to the second floor, so far so good. Then what comes next? First floor and then bang. That's what we are. That's what in this country we are losing grounds and we are actually forgetting that look, sooner or later you're going to hit the bottom. And God has called you and has called me to do something about it. What do you have to complain? What do you have to say to God? Look, God, you don't give me enough. God has given every one of us plenty. Even the poorest among us, we have plenty. And as the church members, we have to help each other as much as we can. That's true. And we're doing it the best we can as a church. Are we doing it as an individual to help as much as we can. Look at Abraham. To me, Abraham is a very interesting example. You see, because he didn't have to do what he did. He didn't argue with God. If we hear that God says, go, take your son, and kill him. 
I have millions of reasons saying, God, I don't believe it. I don't want to do it. I cannot kill my son because I'll be breaking your laws. I mean, he had all kinds of excuses. Why did he, did he take up his cross and went, so to speak? Because he knew God's love. He knew God's character. He knew that God, in the back of his mind, someplace, had another solution. I believe that. In fact, if you read Genesis 22, you will find out that in Abraham's thinking, there's more than you and I think about it. Because you can see God who loves every one of us could not give an order like that unless he was sure that Abraham had the right type of faith. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, see, look at the... Even the order is not normal. I'm not being her heretical. God cannot give an order like this unless he's sure that the answer is somewhere else. And there was somewhere else. Even Abraham saw it. 12 chapter 1, Genesis. Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family, look at this order. I mean, this is so abnormal. And from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Ah. You, are, you haven't seen it, but leave what you have, go someplace you don't even know where. That's what it is, isn't it? But then you see, uh, follows a tremendous reward. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Wow. And as I bless you, he says, those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And all the families of the earth should be blessed. Look at the rewards. There's an interesting compromise here. Is God tempting Abraham? No. Is God making a promise to him? Yes. God can keep his promise? Yes. Then why is he asking a question? There's a lesson, brethren. Don't ask God, why? God knows what he's doing. If you do what he says and have Abraham's attitude, you're okay. This is what we should all learn in the church of God. So, so what did Abraham do? Verse 4, Genesis 12. He departed as the Lord had spoken to him. When you see the Hollywood picture, you won't see it. The Hollywood made a picture of this. Abraham was complaining. 
argue with God. No, you don't have to argue with God. God knows he knew what he was doing. And a bit later he explains. Because when the son says, where is the sacrifice? He says, God will provide. You remember? Yes, and God did provide. I will stop skipping some because I would be like an icon, so. <laughs> Take another example. Now, Abraham's nephew did not have the same attitude. Lot. God told him, Genesis 19, verse 26, He said, Don't let your wife to Lot look back. I said a moment ago, don't ask why. I'm not asking God why. I'm asking humanly speaking, why disorder? God says, don't look back because of the fact you want to desire the things you missed. You, you, the things you regret. Don't look back. A lot of people in the church of God, brethren, that's where we have fallen. We looked back. We looked back in the sense that we had plenty in Pasadena. We had, we were blessed. And we didn't realize that we did not deserve what we have. Today we don't deserve what we have. Every one of us here have more than we deserve. That's true. So you see, God told, <clears throat> don't, don't look back to Lot's wife. What did she do? She did look back, did she? What happened to her? Just as God had said, she became a pillar of souls. See, they try to understand a part of a lesson we can learn, and also what could happen to us individually. <coughs> now, Look, you heard in the sermon this morning, Egypt. And Egypt is a good country in the sense that there are lots of blessings over there too. But what Egypt symbolizes in, in the Bible is sinful, sinful nation, sinful attitudes. So God says, come out of it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Let's take Moses. 
That's interesting. Moses, like, just like Paul, had plenty. Now, when he was a child, he was protected by his parents. It was fine. His parents disobeyed Pharaoh because they want to obey God. You can't kill a child. So he was protected, protected for three months. I won't enter into details. Pharaoh's daughter saved him. Moses had nothing to do until then. You know, Moses had, Moses had no decision-making experience. He was a child. He was protected. Always under God's direction. Okay, what happens? You are not responsible if you are not responsible for your decisions. A child, and we have quite a few here, they don't understand, they don't know. They cannot make a decision. I'm talking about babies, like in Moses' case. Look what happens. Hebrews 11, and that to me is very important. Hebrews 11, verse 24. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith Moses, when he became of age. Interesting. Again, Bible explains. When he became of age, refused. From this moment on, Moses is make, making a decision. Now he's responsible. When he was saved, physically speaking, by Pharaoh's daughter, he had nothing to do. He wasn't conscious what's happening. But now that he became of age, what did he do? Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter. Now wait a moment. He had everything, didn't he? He could have had everything. He's refusing to be Pharaoh's daughter. Just like Paul refused to be an important person. He preferred to be a slave, to be close to God. So, choosing, look at the word choosing. Interesting word. When you choose something, you do it purposely, willingly, knowingly. It was an accident. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. You know, that, that sentence to me floors me. You're choosing willingly, knowingly, purposely to suffer with God's people. That's where we are. Except we're not choosing that much we, we think. Maybe we, we want more, that's a different story. But the fact is that the very choice we have made, it's for our good. So, Moses did that. Rather than what? rather than enjoyed themselves by passing pleasures of 
sin. Now, to me, again, to me, I stopped there. I said, wait a moment. It's so clear. Moses could have chosen the pleasures of this world. With the daughter of Pharaoh, with an important person. You must be out of your mind to give up all that and just go and suffer as God's slave. Why? Why did he do it? Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the fruit and the treasures of Egypt. Why? We can't say why, because why a man of his caliber, a man of his understanding, will do things like this? The answer is following. He looked to the reward. There it is. He did it, he chose it, because he knew there was a reward, and the reward is from God. And the reward is eternal life. That's what you and I are promised. And Moses knew it. Understood. So, that was enough for him to know that no matter what you get in this world, no matter what you can get, I don't care how great anyone of us could be or could have been. Nothing compares to the reward that God has given giving us. I don't know if I've had to get this example, but maybe I should just paraphrase. In First King chapter seventeen, First King chapter seventeen, as a prophet of God, Elijah. Elijah too made tremendous promises through God and then had a very interesting life. Here, let me just again, uh, paraphrasing, he sees a woman, a poor woman, and uh, Elijah goes after verse 10. Let's see if I give you here. First yeah. King chapter 17, verse 10. So he, he says, Bring me, he says, a little water to and not deny it, so I can drink. And uh, she goes out, verse 11. Elijah says, uh, please bring me also a morsel of bread. Now look, this is not written because there's something we should learn, just physically speaking. Here we have prophet of God who has done tremendous miracles. He sees a poor woman and the woman has nothing practically. And Elijah says, bring me something to eat. Strange, isn't it? Now, why is this given in the Bible? 
What are we trying to learn? The very lessons that we in this country have forgotten. You know, USA, when I was in Pasadena, Ms. Robertson would tell me, Debar, this country God chose because we can help other people. That is true. USA would help everyone. We did not have the corrupted ways of living we have today. So here again, we have Elijah, who can do anything with God's help, asking a poor woman, bring me such a morsel of bread. Verse 12, she says, Lord, I don't have bread. Only a handful of flour. That's all. That's all she has. And Elijah is asking her to give him first to eat. See, humanly speaking, doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. Because God is giving us a lesson. God is showing us what we should do and what He, God, can do and will do. So she says, verse 12, handful of flour, little oil in a jar. Interesting. What did Elijah say? Verse 13. He said to her, Do not fear. You'll find this sentence in the Bible time and again. Read it. You have computers, most of you have. Look at this sentence, don't fear. How often you will find this exaltation by God, don't fear. Israelites feared when they left Egypt. Here, the prophet of God says, don't fear. You don't have enough, a miracle will happen. Says, do, do as I said. There's a condition. Don't fear. Just do what I'm saying. And make, make me a small cake. First. First. See, conditions of God sometimes do appear harsh. They are not. God is testing us. God tested this woman over here. Bring it to me. He says, and afterwards, says, make me first for me. Then you can have it for your son and for you. And then verse 14 is the promise. It says, the Lord, the Lord God will bless you. There will have plenty of oil, plenty of flour until the end. Now, Again, why? Why, is, why this example? Because God promises every one of us to give what we need. It is true. Maybe you don't think, think so. Maybe you don't think God is giving you what you need. You're wrong. 
God is giving me what I need. If I complain, I'm wrong. As you heard in the sermon, don't complain. You always have, you will always have what you need. Trust God. Don't fear. But I don't know if I have you. Maybe I should. Yeah. What happens? Here we have a poor woman, nice woman, and Elijah appreciated her. And after a while, the, the son gets sick. Why? Again, I say, don't ask God why. God is testing. The woman lost her child. He dies. Verse 18. So she says to Elijah, What have I done to you, man of God? She knows this is a man of God. Why this curse on me? You come to me to bring my sin to remembrance. She knew she was a sinner and to kill my son see there's your human nature human way of reasoning until then she was not reasoning as though Elijah came to see her son die this is the way we reason brethren this is the way we just find faults don't try to find faults with God God is love, God is merciful. God certainly didn't want Elijah to kill that son of hers. Yet, that's the way she's reasoning. What did Elijah do? Read the rest. She asked God, he asked God to intervene. He did. The son came back life. There are so many stories like this in the Bible. And some of us are blind. We don't see God's love and God's interventions. Maybe I have just enough time to give you one or two more. We'll see. And it will be for us to really understand why God does things the way he does. Take the prodigal son. Now, to me, the prodigal son is a very interesting parable. It could be true also. But you see, in that parable, there are quite a few lessons. First of all, in Luke chapter 15, I'm skipping quite a few here. Luke chapter 15, Christ is talking. Christ's parables are very meaningful. Christ is showing here a lesson that every one of us should understand and appreciate. And to me, this parable has much more meaning 
than we think. It is not just a lesson between two brothers. No, much more than that. Luke 15, verse 11. Christ has said, a certain man had two sons. You know it, but I'm going to once again point out important parts here. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the portion of good that falls to me. Okay. Now he, here's an agreement. The young son wants from his father to receive whatever his share of inheritance is. Fine. What happens? So the father, look at the father's attitude. Try to see, try to follow each ones involved here, their reasoning. The father divided to them his livelihood. You know what? The son got what was coming to him. Also, the other son got it too. They both got it. So the father gave each one what their inheritance is. What happens? Not many days after, the younger one gathered together and journeyed to a far country. The Bible doesn't give any details. Or the far countries, I don't know, but so he goes, wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Sometimes he just two or three words as a writer describes the whole thing. Now you can see that the young guy, brother here wasted the money with whores, whatever it is. Okay, it happens. But when he had to spend, verse 14, all he spent all. Quite a boy. And they aroused a severe famine in the land. And the son began to be wanting. Now he has, he has lost everything, has no more money. What does he do? See, he had a rich father. They had a good living. I'm trying to just show to you in this power here the things perhaps you missed. He had everything he wanted. He had a good father, rich father, and father divided his possessions. Verse uh, 17. But when he came to himself, that's good. All of us have to become to ourselves sooner or later. In this country we are doing it. In families we are doing it. Here the son, the young one, 
he comes to himself. What does that mean? He thinks, he realizes he has done wrong, he's sorry, he wants to go back. See, all these lessons in this parable here. Could it be too late? Humanly, maybe. But from God's point of view, he said to himself, verse 17, how many more, how many of my father's house or hired servants have bread enough? As you're never bread in a way, but see that again. My father has plenty to eat and to give and to spare, and I perish with hunger. See, those little words when you read, think of them. My father has plenty to eat, I'm starved, yes I've sinned, I shouldn't have done it, what can I do now? Today shows God's love. So what he says, I will rise, verse 18, go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. See, that one statement shows the kid's attitude. He recognizes his mistakes. He knows it's wrong. Maybe through wrongly living, he learned a lesson. Not maybe, he did learn a lesson. So what does he do? Does he question his father's love toward him? No. I will rise, go to my father, and say to him, and he meant it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Do you see the, the level of sin, sinful life? So I have sinned against heaven and you. But again, if you have sinned against God, even God will forgive you. That, that's the reason why the father there, later on you will see, was willing to forgive the son. Because if God is willing to forgive you, and that's the lesson we learn during this feast. If you recognize, if you say, I'm back, I'm sorry. Just don't use the words, when you say I'm sorry, do mean that you're sorry. So that's the decision he makes. He goes a bit further. I'm no longer, verse 19, worthy to be called your son. Look at this. And this is what I call repentance. He sinned. He knows it. He knows that he does not deserve to be his son anymore. He says, let me be one of your servants. And verse 20, he goes to his father. From that moment, don't look at, look at the, the Bible, the way it describes the chain of events. It's beautiful. The father could have said no. The father could have acted in the wrong way. Because the man did everything which is wrong. 
So he came to his father. When the father saw with a great way of, you know what's, in a way, the father was waiting almost. So his, his son had compassion. I've told this again and I'll tell you again. Every time you find in the Bible the word compassion, something takes place. Something happens. A change takes place. A change for better. Every time Christ had compassion, things change. He either healed someone, whatever it was, it was something good happened. So you see, the father is the one who is making the first move. He is the one coming with compassion and run, run. Not even just walking, just run. And fell off his neck and blessed. You know what? The father's love is still there. What happens? See, this is to me what unleavened bread week is. Because we are all sinful. We all have missed the point. And we go to God. God is the one coming to us, in a way, because we took the first step. We turned toward Him. He's running in this parable. So he fell on his neck and kissed him. And the, the, the kid kept his word, didn't he? And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. That one word explains exactly the attitude. Now sometimes I've said we just misuse words. We just use words meaningfully. Sometimes meaninglessly. When I say I'm sorry, you don't always mean you're sorry. It's a word you, you as expression you use. But here, when the son says, I have sinned, he meant it. Because he proved. He came. He gave up. So I'm sorry. And then, after he says, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Another important statement. None of us is worthy of God's calling. None of us is worthy to be called God's son to be made. He said, I'm no longer worthy. What did the father do? Verse 22, verse, the father said to his servants, bring out the best, the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You know what's he? Give him back what he deserves the proper way as a son of his father. He's, the father is willing to just forgive all that. Why? 
because he loved his son. Because the son came to repentance. And that's what we are here for. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a time we do repent totally. And don't look back. Finished. Verse 23, the father says, bring the best calf, kill it, and let's eat and be merry. You know, to me, this parable has a lot of meanings. The father's attitude, the young son's attitude, the elder son's attitude. The elder son is totally different from the younger son. The elder son thinks he was good. That's all I come to it in a moment. He says, look, I've always been good and you haven't given me anything. There's your human nature again. The father divided what they had. So, the father says, my son was dead and he's, he lives again. Now he's the oldest. The father's attitude is God's love. God's mercy toward us. The son's attitude is your life and my life. We do repent and we mean it. We want to be a slave. But God has promised he will put us back what he has given us, promised to give us. Now look at the quote-unquote the good son's attitude. And I, and I would like to re really call your attention on it. The son, the elder one, supposed to be a good son. He did not waste his money with prostitutes. Yet he did do all the bad things he should have done. What happens to him? Look at the attitudes. He doesn't even want to come in the house. The father has to come out of the house to meet him. Right away you know, you can see that there's something wrong with this kid, even though he's supposed to be good. He doesn't want to come in the house so the father comes out because he asks what's happening. They said, your father came and your father has, your, your son, your boy came and your father has killed the father calf, verse 28. He's, the, he, the son, the elder son, the good boy, was what? angry that is what would your attitude be if this happened to you or to your brother would you be jealous would you be angry at your father and he won't even go in the house he's so mad he's so upset therefore the father came out verse 28 and pleaded with him. As I said, there's so much in this parable. 
Because none of us deserves God's love. All of us are sinned and Christ died to give us a chance to go once again over our sins, erase them, efface them, repent of them, and then start a new life. That's what happened to the young one. I don't know what happened to this elder son. The Bible doesn't show that. Only showed that he was jealous and he was angry. And it says, verse 29, look at the... Automatically it's lie because the father did divide the wealth. It says, Lord, there, is, there are many years I have been serving you. The very fact that he's bringing back his good actions, whatever it is, it shows he is in a wrong attitude. So I never, you know, brethren, when I see the word never, I shiver. Because I teach, used to teach etymology. I've learned time and again, don't ever use the word ever. It's good. Don't ever use the word never and ever. Because sometime or another, I'm talking about on a human level, sometime or another, it is not never, it is not ever, humanly speaking. Here you can see the God, the younger son, says, I never transgressed. It shows right away he's in the wrong attitude. Your commandments. At any time. <laughs> That's superlatives. At any time. Yet you never gave me. Automatically you know the son here is a bad attitude. The way the son is arguing with the father. He never gave me young goat to make marry with my friends. How did the father answer? See, in this parable you can see the attitudes. The younger one who meant it, the father who forgave, and the older son, ungrateful, boastful, lying in a way I never, and look at the attitude of the Father. Of verse 30. This is the way we talk. When we don't love someone, we put the blame in such a way which is like accusing. Says, but as soon as he, this son of yours, why don't you say my brother? Once you're in a bad attitude, even your speech becomes perverted. And he said, my brother came. No, no, your son came. And then bring him all the dirt who has devoured his livelihood with harlots. Is that the place to say it? Why does he have to bring it? The father is forgiven here 
that yours, this son of yours came, you killed the fatted calf. And how did the father answer? This is what maybe I will, yeah. I'll never finish it, I told you. So the father looked at the way he answers. And this is the way God is going to answer our prayers. There's no doubt, brethren, we are heading toward catastrophe in this country. Look at what happened for the last few weeks, the three or four earthquakes. 6.9, when we were in Pasadena, was awful. Now we have 6.9 just every time there's an earthquake. There's one yesterday in Mexico. See? So the father says, look, my son says, you are always with me. All of us are always with God. Let's remain that way. And all I have is yours. You know, father is talking and he's telling you, he's telling me, look, we are, so long as we stay in God's church, in God's family, so long as we become one with God, with His Spirit, we have nothing to worry about. And God says, he, whatever I have, it's yours. That's what He has promised. To be God's sons means to be having what God has and be able to do what God is able to do. He says, it was right, verse 32, that we should make merry and be glad. The Father is talking. For your brother, what? Was dead? Yeah. When we are in this sinful attitude, we are dead. He says, for your brother, he said, was dead and is alive again. Take time and reflect those words. You were dead and you're alive again. I was dead. We're alive again. How? Through Christ's sacrifice. How? By putting sin out of our lives. How? By doing what God says. So the one who says he was dead just alive again. And he was lost and he's found again. Brother, I would like to stop here because that's a good stopping point. I haven't finished the, the sermon yet. I mean, next time I continue it. But, but, but the fact is this. There's a tremendous lesson to learn during the week of, of Eleven Branch. The prodigal son's life, that's your life and mine. Then God's attitude toward us, His willingness to forgive us. And then you have the other son, who thinks he's 
courage. And some of us think we are courage. And some of us think we are better than others. The very fact you think that way, brethren, there's something wrong in our thinking. You know, when I began the summer, I said, don't ever look down on anyone. Sure, the world today is not keeping the unleavened bread. They don't even know what it means, except bread. But if you could help them, if you could show by your attitude what it means to be Christian, what it means to be one who cares for his brother, whether he is in the church or not. You know, let me just get this off my chest also. Look at 7,000 people we have in the church. When I was in Pasadena, we had 120,000. Where are these people? They are not sinful. We are all sinful. They let the human mind humor jealousy or vanity distract them. So tonight, when you pray to God and thank Him for this week, ask God to remember our brethren. Ask God to have mercy on them. But you cannot ask God to have mercy on them unless you yourself have the right thoughts toward them. Anyway, so this is my unfinished sermon. I tried to finish it sometime. The fact is that I'm very happy that I was able to share those thoughts with me. That's all the song and get ready to go back to resume our lives. <laughs>